1: As geeks, we can do a lot to help our environment by doing the little things, by using less water to brush our teeth or using rece- usable bags instead of plastic bags while at the grocery store. But as individuals, it's hard for us to make that large impact on the well-being of our planet. That's where businesses and corporations can step in to be leaders in combating climate change. The Racy Anderson Foundation is based on the values of creating a better world for tomorrow's child through encouraging businesses to take action. John Lanier is the executive director of the foundation, and we're going to talk about his family ties to this wonderful effort. John, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Marshall. And it, it's really an honor to have you because
1: uh, you know we've we've been colleagues and have worked together in recent years, and I'm I'm so excited for the Weather Geeks listeners to hear all about the work that you're doing in climate and to help save our planet. I usually start off with our guests by asking, how in the heck did you get interested in weather? Because we tend to have a lot of weather and climate folks. But I'm going to vary that a little bit, John.
0: How did you end up as the executive director of the Racy Anderson Foundation? I I'm a lucky soul. That's the best answer I suppose I can give. But uh, I'll give you the the full context here. We are a family foundation, and our namesake Ray Anderson, uh, whose story I can I can share with your audience. We want to hear with, it. We're going to get all into it for sure. All right, all right. Well, yeah. When he passed away in 2011, he was a successful businessman and and had a a, a sizable estate. He left the foundation the bulk of his estate, and his. His family was then empowered to give his money away, to support the sorts of causes that most closely aligned with what he stood for and what he represented. Uh, I am one of five grandchildren, uh, fortunate to be able to say that. And my professional background before joining the foundation was as a tax attorney, which in the nonprofit world are are useful skills. So I was very fortunate that that my family, my mother, my father, my aunt, and my uncle, who are the the four trustees of this foundation, asked me if if I'd be interested in running the day-to-day operations of this grant-making foundation. And the last seven and a half years uh, with the foundation has has been incredible incredibly rewarding. I get to combine uh, my, my passion for the environment with a field philanthropy where you support others that is so deeply rewarding. So it's been a, a joy for me. You, you heard some of John
1: Lanier's background, but let me give you some of his official background. John Lanier is the executive director of the Racy Anderson Foundation. His grandfather is the pioneering environmental CEO that changed the game, as you noted. And as he mentioned, he's previously an associate attorney with Sutherland, Ass, Bill, and Brennan, LLP, specializing in U.S. federal taxation. He's a member of the 2014 class of the Institute for Georgia Environmental Leadership, and he has a B.A. in history and economics from the University of Virginia. So clearly, John, your background is quite tailor-made for what you're doing, and you mentioned Ray C. Anderson I want to sort of pause here and spend some time on on your grandfather because people may not know who he is and people may know who he is, but if they don't know who he is, they may have walked on his product because <laughs> he was a pioneer uh, in, in an industry that perhaps some don't think about as being environmentally sensitive or sound, but he paved the way for what I would say as environmental industrialism. So tell us, tell us, and all of the listeners about Racy Anderson Foundation and why why we should all know who he is.
0: Uh, it's my favorite story to tell. My grandfather, he was a small-town Georgia boy, and it was a football scholarship that allowed him to go to college. Uh, he, he went to Georgia Tech and um, was a very successful student there, and after graduating in 1956, set out to climb the corporate ladder in the in the textile space. But he had an entrepreneur's heart. Uh, it was just core to who he was, and it was on a business journey trip in the late 1960s, where he saw for the first time the idea that, that would allow him to become that entrepreneur. He saw carpet tile for the first time. And at that point, most commercial floor covering, really most most floor covering uh, in the carpet space uh, around the world was, was broad loom, big rolls of carpet that would be cut to fit the shape of the room, but Ray saw carpet tile half meter by half meter squares of carpet. And he realized that was the future that internal uh, spaces were going to want to have the flexibility that removable carpet tiles would offer either to selectively replace them. If one gets stained or worn or to be able to access wiring in the floors as office spaces, were going to big wide open uh, floor plans. So he bet the farm, and started a company that came to be called Interface in 1973 and scratched and clawed as any entrepreneur has to and found success. So by 1983, Interface was able to go public and the capital inflow from the IPO allowed them to expand globally, uh, buying up other carpet companies. And by 1994, Interface had grown to be a $600 million a year in sales company, and it was the largest manufacturer of carpet tile, a truly global industrial company that by every metric of success at the time was wildly successful. But 1994 was an important year for my grandfather. He was 60 years old, and the, the company had started to receive questions from, uh, from customers about what they were doing for the environment, and the sales team didn't have good answers to that. My grandfather didn't have a good answer. Uh, it was, well, we're complying with environmental law. Isn't that enough? Um, But they realized that wouldn't satisfy the environmentally conscious consumers that, that they hoped would buy their product. So the company pulled together a task force to answer the question, what should interface do for the environment? My grandfather was asked to give the kickoff speech for that task force. And he didn't know what to say, so desperate for inspiration, he picked up a book that had serendipitously been left on his desk. And the book was called The Ecology of Commerce, written by Paul Hawken. And he read it straight through in one night. And I I cannot impress uh, enough upon the audience that this was a deeply emotional experience. He was moved to tears because the book... It charged business and industry, businesses just like his, as the primary culprit in the environmental degradation that the world has seen for the past decades. But it also said that business and industry is the only sector large enough, well enough organized and capitalized to fundamentally solve the environmental challenges that we have. Business and industry must lead. And for my grandfather, it was as if somebody had held up a mirror to his company and for the first time he saw a dark side uh, and he could never unsee it, that his business was far from sustainable. Uh, He had never heard the term before, but he realized the importance of it. Businesses like his would one day have to be run in a way such that they did no harm. And he dedicated himself for the last 17 years of his life to transforming his company And through the example of his company, hoping to transform the entire industrial world to begin pursuing a deep, authentic commitment to environmental sustainability. So he was the first publicly traded CEO to take a stand on the environment at his business.
1: Yeah, and, and we're all we're all as a, a citizens of the earth better for it because of his actions. I truly believe that, and as I've gotten to know more and have read your book, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well, uh, it's really amazing uh, the influence he had and how he led others. Now. You've got something on your website, and I want to read it to the listener. It says, carbon neutrality is good, and going further by pursuing carbon negative technologies and solutions, solutions is even better. Now, I think this is a good point for me to sort of let the foundation know that you have moved from sort of a broader set of environmental uh, sort of focus with, with your grandfather's efforts and even with your foundations to a real sharp focus on climate change. Why is, why is the foundation stepping up on climate change? And we're going to talk about some of the ways in which you are, but what, what was the sort of moment that you realized you wanted to
0: really move on this issue? I would say it was in 2016. We were having an advisory board meeting with our foundation that had our trustees, as well as some of the, uh, the friends and inspirations of my grandfather, real titans in the environmental sustainability movement. Uh, we're all together in a room talking about the success our foundation had had up to that point and, and perhaps what, what more we should be doing. And our advisory board really challenged us to think about what we can do on the issue of climate. They did that because it's the one issue within environmental sustainability broadly that we have to get right. It doesn't matter if we figure out how to solve plastic pollution and if we can figure out how to uh, promote biodiversity in better ways, if we can figure out uh, healthier foods for our our communities. Uh, There are so many of these issues that if we get them right, but we get climate wrong, then we're in just as much trouble as if we had never gotten those other things right in the first place. It's the ultimate umbrella issue within climate. And when we saw that and we understood it, we started to ask ourselves the question, how can we do the most good on this issue? We can't solve it all ourselves. No one can. But where can we make the biggest difference on the issue of our time?
1: Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And, and you, you heard me mention carbon neutral and carbon negative. John, could you, I mean, because our listeners of weather geeks are all over the place, but many of them are weather enthusiasts, weather fans and so forth. And all of this sustainability and environmental and kind of maybe a little foreign to them. So can you just give us a one-on-one on the concept of carbon neutral or carbon negative from your
0: perspective? Sure. Yeah. And, and I, I have to say that I've, uh, learned quite a bit about this myself in the, in the past four or five years or so. Uh, to me, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. It's, we're talking about accounting, but instead of accounting for uh, money, we're counting carbon. Uh, when any, any individual, any family, any community, certainly any business, really at any scale, uh, when it exists, when it operates in the world that we live in, there are going to be emissions of greenhouse gases associated with whatever they do as an individual. I hop in my electric vehicle and and I drove it to the office today. Good for me that there were no direct emissions from my battery powered vehicle, but the car was manufactured years ago and fossil fuels were burned to make that happen. The power that charged my batteries. Fossil fuels were used to make that happen. The food that I eat, fossil fuels are emitted in our agricultural system. So when you you take a wide view of, of, again, any scale and you look for all of the carbon that went into the atmosphere because you operated, well, that's your footprint. And if you can reduce that footprint, or go beyond that and even exist and operate in a way where less carbon's in the atmosphere because of how you operate than uh, you put up, you can become carbon negative. It's Again, it's it's accounting. So it would be like you had a checking account with $1,000 in it to start, and you could pull $10 from it every month, eventually you're going to run out. You have to find ways to either pull less than that $10 a month. What if you took $5? Well, you've reduced your draw on it. What if you replenished dollars in that checking account? You could even start adding to the value of it. The analogy tracks perfectly for this. So carbon neutral and eventually carbon negative uh, operations or, or products or anything just means that there is no more carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, on a full analysis of, of what happened because of, uh, that, that product, that, that service, whatever, um, or carbon negative, there's actually less carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, so it's, I, that's why I use the analogy of, of finances is it's something I think everybody can relate to. We, we all understand the value of a dollar bill. Um, well, we can think of, of climate in much the same ways we have a carbon budget, just like we have our own personal budgets.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with John Lanier, who's the executive director of the Racy Anderson Foundation. And we're talking now about the ways that the sort of roots, if you will, of uh, Racy Anderson's legacy as a pioneer in environmentalism within uh, a heavy in- industry. Has now sort of followed through with the Racy Anderson Foundation, which is led by John Lanier, and and shout out to all of all of his family members—they're wonderful people that I've had a chance to meet—and members of, of of your board and so forth. Uh, we appreciate what you're doing for the planet. I want to now get into the specifics of what you're doing in terms of attacking this climate change or climate crisis, as many call it. And we we recently had Dr. Marilyn Brown who's a part of the core team, as am I, on the Georgia Drawdown initiative. But I know there are many things that you're doing, Georgia Drawdown, you've uh, funded uh, the Georgia, gotten the Georgia Climate Project off the ground. We're going to talk a little bit later about the Ray. Um, But let's talk about, and you you can go in any order, just your portfolio of things that you're doing to address the climate crisis.
0: Sure. Yeah, we felt that as grant makers wanting to advance Ray Anderson's legacy, that we shouldn't Spread ourselves too thin, that we should have core flagship um, initiatives that we that we support uh, that can have more significant of an impact. Uh, And so actually the the first one of these was to support Georgia Tech and their business school. It's, It's where my grandfather went. He loved his alma mater and we fund the Ray C. Anderson Center for Sustainable Business. And the folks who run that center have done a tremendous work to have outreach to businesses and help them think through all of the ways that they can be more environmentally friendly. But certainly that includes ways that they can make a difference on climate. They're also partners in in Drawdown Georgia, uh, as you mentioned. We have supported the Biomimicry Institute to do an entrepreneurship challenge. Biomimicry, for any listeners who haven't heard the term, is a design discipline where you ask the question, how how does nature solve the problem I'm trying to solve? And nature is the best teacher. It has figured out how to make stuff and to exist in community better than humans have. And there's so much that we can learn. Uh, And entrepreneurs around the globe are, are looking to nature to understand how to make things better, how to have the next breakthrough product or innovation. We're proud to support them. But then we come to to Georgia in particular, where we are and where we feel our network is the the richest. And and you mentioned the Ray. I, I, I suppose I, sh- I should say now what it is and how it came to be. And absolutely sure. Uh, because it's one of our flagships initiatives as well. The Ray is a highway project. We were honored to have a portion of Interstate 85 in West Georgia. It connects my grandfather's birthplace, West Point, Georgia, right on the border with Alabama, to LaGrange, Georgia, 18 miles uh, up the road where he founded Interface. So we were honored that, that the state legislature put his name on this interstate. But it was my aunt, Harriet Langford, who was the one to say, oh my goodness, we just put the greenest industrialist name on a dirty highway. Mm -hmm. Daddy wouldn't like this. (laughs) So under her leadership, we created The Ray, uh, a standalone nonprofit to work on making this 18 miles of interstate the prototypical highway of the future. Uh, What would it look like if this interstate were sustainable, much like my grandfather asked, what would it look like if his industrial manufacturing company were sustainable? And the answers to that have been tremendous. They have identified technologies so diverse from, um, uh, bio sequestering, uh, crops that could be planted in the right of ways of the interstates all the way to, uh, pavement that can be solar panels, drive-on solar panels, and they're demonstrating these technologies right here in Georgia. And it dovetails perfectly with our newfound focus on climate because their vision is is a highway a highway system with, with zero death, certainly. You don't want people dying on a highway. You can't call it sustainable if that's the case. Zero waste, but zero carbon as well. We should find ways to make our transportation systems Zero carbon. So they have been a um, a a tremendous example of of how you can solve multiple environmental problems at the same time, with climate being one of them. And then our most recent thing, Drawdown Georgia, which which I um, you've been such an important part in bringing this to life. It's it's in many respects our fourth big initiative where we want to focus on what it would take for the entire state of Georgia to achieve carbon neutrality and go beyond to be carbon sequestering, as I was talking about before.
1: And could you, because, again, I know we have adamant listeners that follow us closely, the uh, Drawdown Georgia effort kind of emerged out of the broader climate drawdown or drawdown effort, which I know Paul Hawkins, which you mentioned earlier, was a, a part of. So could you sort of orient the listeners to the sort of the broader Drawdown concept and then how uh,
0: Drawdown Georgia came to be? Absolutely. So this is, this is such an uh, – what I view as an elegant origin story for Drawdown Georgia because the roots are in Project Drawdown, a nonprofit that a number of years ago started with a question. They wanted to know, and Paul Hawken was the, the founder, what – things that humanity is already doing can do the most to reverse global warming. If we just scaled the the tools that we already have at our disposal, like LED lighting, uh, like plant-rich diets, like building retrofits, like regenerative agriculture, and educating girls in the developing world, all of these the scientists can show us the carbon reduction potential, how, how much less carbon will be in the atmosphere if we just do more of these things. But we didn't have an apples-to-apples comparison. Which of those can do the most? Where's our best bang for our buck in terms of carbon reduction potential? And they did the research and looked at the 100 most substantive solutions to reverse global warming. And their findings were shocking to many. Yes, much like you would expect, solutions like rooftop solar panels and utility scale solar were very impactful, very beneficial, top 10 technologies. But Number five on their list was tropical forest preservation and restoration. Number one on their list was refrigerant management, figuring out how to make sure all of the the greenhouse gases that we put into our air conditioners and refrigerators don't leak and go out and into the atmosphere. Number number three and number four were reduced food waste and plant-rich diets food-related things. Who has been talking about the potential for food to make a difference on this issue? So it changed the game in how people conceived of climate action. There's so much more that we can and should be doing. But Project Drawdown did not and cannot uh, tell any region what their most substantive solutions are. Again, if I look to that top 10 list and I said, I'm a Georgian. This is where I can make a difference. Let's look to the top 10 lists. Well, tropical forests, number five, aren't going to do any good here. So you're left with an obvious question. What does our list of sub- substantive solutions look like? What would it be like if we ran the numbers, did the math on carbon reduction potential for solutions here in Georgia? that's what drawdown georgia is and it's the the research that's been led by by you and others at the university of georgia by folks at georgia tech and at emory university and with other partner organizations and institutions that are helping to answer that question and it's really just a starting point to then see the solutions actually scale
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia speaking with John Lanier from the Ray C. Anderson Foundation and just talked about Drawdown Georgia, which is a really pioneering effort. I think it's really nation leading in its focus and its sort of specific drill down of the um, project Drawdown concept on a regional scale. And as as you're listening to this, it's probably October and I know there's a big week uh, that's going to be happening uh, the, during this month, John. Tell us a little bit about, about what's going on in, in the, the Drawdown week, if I think it's what it's being called or yeah. something
0: that. It's our it's our official launch of of Drawdown Georgia, and and again, this is many partners in helping to make this happen. So, um, I'll share a few things that will happen beginning October seventeenth, uh, going for the the full following week. We want this to be the first chance for a wide range of audiences to engage with what Drawdown Georgia is. Again, it's it's research, but that's the starting point. It's it's really uh, what we hope becomes a movement for climate action in the state of Georgia that crosses a whole host of lines. Uh, We want this to be a a movement that is diverse, that has different sectors' perspectives, whether it's the tree farmers down in South Georgia or the mid-level managers at businesses right here in the heart of Atlanta. Everybody has a seat at the table of winning the race to a low-carbon future, and Georgia can win that race. So the week will consist of um, a number of, of what are called civic dinners. It's an organization here in Georgia that allows people to have deep and authentic conversations about issues that matter. And so given COVID, these will happen in a virtual setting. But we invite people to to go to drawdownga.org, drawdownga.org, and sign up uh, on... On the list there uh, for a civic dinner to, to participate in a conversation with eight to, to 10 people about the different solution sectors that drawdown Georgia highlights. We have electricity solutions. We have natural sinks like afforestation and coastal wetland preservation. We have transportation solutions. We have food and agriculture solutions. And we have building and material solutions. And each of these dinners, one per night uh, throughout the week, will focus on what is possible within these sectors and allow people to, to dig in and really engage in a, in a meaningful and authentic way. So throughout the week, we want people to to understand the solutions, but beyond just the solutions, to also have conversations about the things beyond carbon that solutions bring to the table. This is a critical component of Drawdown Georgia, that when we scale solutions, we can, yes, help reverse global warming, but also advance equity advance economic development opportunities, inclusive economic development opportunities, generate better human health outcomes, and to preserve our natural environment in a whole host of ways. So the very beginning of Drawdown Week will be a dinner that explores, in particular, the connection points to equity. And Nathaniel Smith from the Partnership for Southern Equity will give our opening keynote, um, because if we don't do this for the least advantaged peoples in our communities, then we are not doing it right. Uh, So I want people to really understand those connections between equity and climate and how important it is right here in Georgia.
1: Yeah, I love that Nathaniel's going to be doing it. Nathaniel and I just recently had, uh, were appointed to the board of the IS, uh, I organization called ISC. So I'm looking forward to getting to know him a bit better in his work. You recently published a book, John. Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, it was one of the honors of my lifetime because um, I, I I tell people I wrote a book, but the honest answer is I wrote half a book. My grandfather wrote two books in his life, and the first one in 1998 was called Mid-Course Correction. It was just four years into his journey as an environmentalist. So he wrote from the standpoint of, of reflecting back a bit towards uh, what Interface had accomplished in those early years. But primarily, he was looking forward. He he created this vision of what he wanted Interface to become. He called it the prototypical company of the 21st century. And a couple of years ago, we were honored to be able to uh, republish this book. And our, and our uh, publisher, Chelsea Green, uh, thought that there was a retelling of this story that was possible, that we could lightly edit my grandfather's original seven chapters. And then I wrote six additional chapters that brought the story present where I was interface on its journey towards becoming this prototypical company of the 21st century. What were its lessons learned? But then also looking forward once again, just as my grandfather did 20-something years ago, to say what's next. And what I realized we need is not just prototypical companies of the 21st century, but also a prototypical economy of the 21st century, which may be a a new thought for your listeners, uh, but to me, it's such a critical question of how humans will live on planet Earth, is how can we redesign our economy? And the two biggest drivers of what will determine, are we successful in, in creating a truly just, inclusive, and sustainable economy or not? are how well we respond to two big stimuli that are coming in the rest of this century. One of them is climate change. And so I wrote about how that is one of the most uh, pressing opportunities, as well as challenges, that the business world faces. And the other is resource scarcity. And the solution there is what is now known as the circular economy, figuring out how to redesign our entire economic systems to look more like nature and exist in a circular way without waste and without reliance upon fossil fuels that we extract. So that was the, the purpose of the book, to give that, that the storytelling that my grandfather brought to the table, to retell that story and then look ahead once again to what needs to really happen at the intersection of business and the environment.
1: And, and and give our listeners the name of the book and where they can find it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mid-course correction revisited and it can be found on Amazon will probably be your best bet, but we also have uh, our own webpage for it and uh, would love for people to call their local bookstores and see if, if they um, carry the book.
1: Now, I want to kind of start to wrap things up. And I always said, by the way, that when we start to see the business community, the faith-based communities and the military really starting to grapple with and deal with the climate crisis, I I thought we'd see a shift in perception about this notion of climate change. I I think we're starting well into seeing the demise of the skeptic denialist movement. I, I just saw some data even just this morning that suggests that 72% of the Americans believe that we need to take action on climate. And so it's, it's encouraging that organizations like yours are leading the way. Now, what are your final thoughts, John, as we, we, we wrap up the podcast that you'd like to leave with as you think about where we're headed as a, a people, where foundation is headed, and, and where we all need to be headed on
0: these topics? Well, to answer that, I want to speak to the mindset that people have when they care about the environment and and climate change in particular. It is so easy to fixate on the negative the scope of our problems, how many people are suffering, not just will suffer, but are suffering, and how daunting of a, of a task we face to reverse global warming. I get it. I see all of that. But my belief, and I don't think there's a person on the planet that can shake me of this belief, is that positivity and optimism yields bigger and better results. And so I'm not I'm not selling anybody a pipe dream here I encourage folks when they think about the challenges that we face to look for the opportunity side and in climate in particular, we don't just have the opportunity to create a stable climate and avert the catastrophes that that my children will inherit. My young children will turn 84 and 82 at the end of this century. They will probably see every bit of climate change in the 21st century. Yes, I want to avert catastrophe for them, but I also see the opportunity to create a fundamentally better world. If we are successful with Drawdown Georgia, if if we see Drawdown as a, a mindset scale, then you see solutions that deliver a whole host of benefits, and the future that my 84-year-old and 82-year-old daughter and son will grow old in will be one that is more just with better economic opportunities that are more sustainable, that build community and give better human health outcomes. We should focus on how much there is to gain by this work, not just how much there is to lose.
1: And that's, that's amazing advice to end on. John, where can people find you uh, or your foundation on social media or the internet?
0: So I encourage people to follow along with our foundation's, um, Twitter handle, and that's uh, Ray's Legacy, at Ray's Legacy. And I'm at John A. Lanier, R-C-A-F. But then our website, uh, we encourage people to sign up for our newsletter, sign up for my weekly blog that's called Ecocentricity, and you can go to raycandersonfoundation.org for that.
1: And there you go. But before we end every podcast, we love to highlight a scientist, weather enthusiast, and this episode's Geek of the Week is Richard De Mayo, or DeMaio. Richard has a wide range of experience in meteorology, including aviation, broadcasting, and teaching. He's currently an instructor for the Institute of Environmental Sustainability at Loyola University in Chicago, and he also oversees the aviation meteorology program at Lewis University. When it comes to weather, there are no short conversations with Richard. Me too, Richard. He loves discussing anything aviation related and even urban heat islands, which I can also relate to because that's where some of my research has been. If you'd like to learn more about his his work, check out Loyola University's website for more details. Congratulations, Richard, this week's Geek of the Week. If you'd like to nominate a Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks
0: podcast. My pleasure, Marshall. Thank you for being a colleague, a friend, and a teacher.
1: And I am going to end there with those awards, and I appreciate them soundly. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks. One, two, three. Four. those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.